morning. Would you please stand for reading the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Westside. We're glad that you're here today on this beautiful day, on Groundhog's Day. Apparently no shadow, right? Right? Yeah. We're like... Nobody really believes the weatherman at all, but we're like, the groundhog, we believe that, okay? I don't know. All right. Well, we're glad that you're here today. We're continuing um, in the season of Epiphany where we are learning that God is like Jesus. That's what we're learning. So it's a profound implications to know that we don't have to guess um, what God is like, but God has given us the greatest revelation in his son Jesus Christ. And last week, man, we just had a very intentional time of prayer as a church in response to the message and to what God's word had for us. And and man, it was just great laying hands on and praying for people. And it was just a fantastic time. And I got to have a conversation with a young man who uh, just sort of came up afterwards and was pretty emotional and just kind of said, you know, man, in this season of my life, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid. And I said, why? And he said, because what I thought I knew about God wasn't right. And I'm learning new things about God, and it's, and it's kind of scary a little bit. And the moment that he said that, I remembered. Um, I remembered a story from the scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of kids' books. And by the way, if you're a parent and have kids, highly recommend these to you. Uh, Narnia is a magical land, a perfect land where Aslan, who is the king lives and reigns, and he rules through sacrifice. And Aslan very much so represents Jesus. It is a unapologetically sort of Christian um, fantasy world there. But there's a scene in the second book where the kids have been gone from Narnia for a while. They're not around. And, and they come back, and they see Aslan, the great lion and beast, for the first time in a long time. And, and Lucy is, is the most outspoken one of the group when you follow sort of the series. And, and, and here's what happens. Lucy sees Aslan, and she says, Aslan, Aslan, oh dear Aslan. And then Aslan says, welcome child. Aslan, Lucy says, you're so much bigger now. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. She says, not because you're bigger. Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me that much bigger. And that's our relationship with Christ. That's what that young man expressed, that that I'm growing in my relationship. And this Jesus that I 
that I maybe put in a box or this, this Jesus is, is bigger. And what we're learning is that God is like Jesus. And so when we look in the Gospels, we don't have to guess what this God is like. And through the season of Epiphany, there's, there's historically the church has studied a number of passages that sort of reveal that, that Epiphany, that aha moment of who Jesus is. We studied the baptism of Jesus, his miracles, the transfiguration we'll look at. But the calling of the disciples as found in Luke's Gospel today is a very famous passion, uh, passage in the season of Epiphany because it reveals what God is like and what God is doing. And so my big idea in my thesis today to just sort of slide in your DMs is this. God is pursuing people. That's it. God is pursuing people. And, and what we see as to how that's happening through the person of Jesus Christ is, is, is pretty unique. And so we ask the question, if God is pursuing people, then what is that like? Well, I see three things in the passage. I see that God initiates the relationship. I see that God invades our fears. That's point number two. We'll get to that a little later on in the sermon to give you some time, okay? And then number three, I see that God invites us into the mission. So the first thing we see is that God initiates the relationship. So where we're at in Luke's gospel is that Jesus, like last time Jesus was in church and like a demon came at him. And it was like, let the bodies hit the floor, like right in church. Like it was a cool moment, like laying on of hands and like all that stuff. And so Jesus is slow. Like if, if we're following this, like, like we're going to be in Luke's gospel all the way up until Easter. And so what Lucy expressed to Aslan is what my prayer is for us as a church as we journey through the gospel of Luke, that Jesus is getting bigger and he's getting bigger and bigger. And now we see that, that Jesus, if you will, just as a modern example, is, is like a young Billy Graham, okay? So everywhere that Jesus is traveling now in his ministry, some crowds are pressing in. That's what we see there in verse 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in, and, and back then there was no, like, microphones and amplification, so they used the surrounding area and the layout of the land. That's why the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is probably using the, uh, the, the hillside there to echo his voice and amplify his voice. So there's a lot of people around. Jesus is preaching, and it says that he sees some boats there, realizes that there's the fishermen, and then goes out onto the shore to project his voice. Well, we, we see that we're finally introduced the first time to, to Simeon, who, who we'll learn later on is Peter, right? And so I want you to see something about the fact that God initiates the relationship. Look at the verbs that Luke uses. Hopefully you have your Bible in front of you or a fake Bible on your phone. We'll let that slide. Look at verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake. And then verse 3. He asked Simon. And then verse 4. And he said to Simon, put out in the deep. You see what Luke is doing? Who, who's in control of what's happening here? Jesus sees Jesus says, Jesus asks, Jesus, you know, what's interesting is, is that Simon and them are, it says, washing their nets. So this is good. This is like first part of the sermon. Should probably save it towards the end because I don't know if it gets any better than this. But like, like, think about this. Jesus sees Simon long before Simon ever sees Jesus. That's your story. That's my story. Romans says, for, for no one seeks after God. Nobody wakes up one day and is like, I'm going to love God today. I'm just going to make that happen. We see that first God initiates and sees and pursues, but they're washing their nets. So, so back then they fished at night and they fished up on the shore. And, so, and by the way, this is every fisherman's like life passage. 
See, babe, I mean, I should probably buy some more tackle because I'm a fisher of men. See what I'm right, okay? And so, and so they would fish up on the shore in the shallow and have nets. But we learn that Peter says, Master, we fished all night. We haven't caught anything. And they're washing their nets. So they're taking care of their equipment, get the salt and all of that stuff out of the net because it would corrode it and it would break eventually. Think about this. Jesus sees Simon long before Simon sees Jesus. And what's Simon doing? Ordinary day-to-day grind, just washing the nets. Which, by the way, means that he failed at his job that night. Um, No fish, no food on the plate. No fish, no money. But we see that Jesus pursues Simon. Listen, here's what I'm trying to communicate to you. God meets us in the ordinary. And I think we have this image of like, Ooh, man, like if you were like me growing up, it was like church camp and like those conventions and like church camp is like the last night. We're all kind of maybe dehydrated and like kind of tired from camp and like they dim the lights down. and It's like this emotional and everybody's crying. And then we get back from camp and we're like, man, I'll never experience God like I experienced God at camp because this man, it's just popular. This is my hometown. I can't wait to get out of here, man. And, and adults don't laugh. Don't act like you ain't any better. Right. You're like, man, I heard that new factory over there has got a new position. My job is horrible, okay? And we're all looking and we're all searching and we're all, because, man, God's going to meet us. God's going to meet me on that mountaintop over there. I just got to get over there. That's not what we see. We see that God pursues us in the ordinary day-to-day grind. So how would your life change if your perception changed? That, that God could meet us in the ordinary and in the day-to-day. I love the way one theologian put it, and he said it this way. From cover to cover, the Bible portrays our God as living and active among human beings and in history. Scripture shows how our all-wise and loving God works. Theologians have a phrase for this, prevenient, or to say it plainly, our God always makes the first move towards us. He awakens our spirit, then leads us on the path that sets us apart for himself, at the same time satisfying our souls. Theologians have a big phrase for this, and it's called grace, the ongoing action of God in our lives. Listen, this is good news because many of us think that we have to achieve X, Y, or Z in order for God to meet us. And so I've got this stuff going on, and I've got this addiction or this situation, and what I need to do is I need to work that out, and as I'm working that out and achieve something, then God will meet me. But the reality is is that God pursues us and initiates it first. And I know some of you are probably arguing with me. You're like, preacher, do you have a Bible verse for that? I, I, I do, actually. Um, it's the first one in the first book of the Bible. Ready for this? In the beginning, God. Any questions? Let's just meditate on that for a second, okay? Um, find yourself in that verse. You're not there. That must mean it's not about you. Right? God is, and some of you are like, well, God's not pursuing me in my life. Well, I just question if you're in here today. I, I think God's pursuing you. You're, you're in church. That's just a suggestion, okay? I just think that's something that we can point to to go, maybe God's trying to do something in my life. And the good news, that if God is like Jesus, then God initiates this thing long before we were ever pursuing him. And the second good news is this. 
is that God invades our fears. We have to spend a little time here. So Jesus preaches, and, and he's on Simon's boat. So, so Simon's probably listened to the sermon, right? And look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, again, initiating, put out into the deep and let your nets out for a catch. <laughs> look at Simon's response. I love this. This is great. Simon's this way all through the rest of Scripture. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. So just think about it. Jesus comes along. He's this teacher. He's this rabbi. Simon is a blue-collar, grinded-out, 12-hour-a-day guy. He's a fisherman, which was probably a rough occupation back then. He's probably been fishing, maybe even before he could walk, he was probably in the boat. This dude has been around fishing all the time. And then here comes this Jesus guy. Oh, you going to tell me to do something, buddy? Mr. Kingdom of God and all preaching and stuff, right? I'm a fisherman, okay, bro? And he asked this question, like, we haven't caught anything why would I need to put my net down? You know what this is. This is a conversation about Jesus asking someone to do something and someone responding with, that doesn't make sense. That's not practical. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You see, because listen, this whole passage hinges on the rest of Peter's response. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now, what's interesting about this is the fact that verse 6 says, and that they had enclosed a large number of fish, we see that Jesus wants him to put out in the deep, okay? you got to understand something about Jewish culture. So, like in the book of Revelation, there's no more sea, because in the Jewish culture, the sea was uncontrollable and scary. That's why when Jesus speaks to the ocean or to the lake and the sea and it calms down, everybody wigs out, because they're like, who can control the sea? And then when he's walking on the water, people are like, he must be a ghost. They're scared of the deep and of the ocean. And that's the very place that Jesus says that he wants them to go. See, listen, I say this all the time, but here's what I'm trying to say. There is a part of Jesus Christ that you can only know on the other side of obedience. And here's what we want. We want that knowledge that it's almost like a drug in Christian cultures, right? That Bible study knowledge. Ooh, got that new Beth Moore fire, right? We just love the studies and the, and listen, it's great. We're all about that here. We are all about that knowledge. But what we understand is there is only so much of Jesus that you can know in a little Bible study. At some point, you have to apply what you know. And there is on the other side of that experience and that obedience, that is the level of relationship that you're desiring for Christ. It's on the other side of that. And we see that this is Jesus' motive all the time, asking people to do something that does not make sense. So what's that for your life? I can't call that person. I can't send that text message. I can't. Uh, you know the implications of that? I can't. All I'm saying is... What if your relationship with Jesus is missing something that, that you could know on the other side of that obedience? And he says, put out into the deep. And then, and then here's what happens, verse 6, every fisherman's life verse. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Amen. It's going to be a great fish, a fish fry, right? And their nets were breaking so much so that they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled up both the boats so that they began to sink. Both boats are sinking. You know what I thought about when I read this? I bet there was a guy that probably worked for Simon Peter 
He was like, we didn't catch nothing tonight. Peter doesn't know what he's doing. Well, I should be the boss of this company. And then when they catch all the fish and their boat's sinking, I bet he complained about the boat sinking. <laughs> Our boat's sinking, man. What's going on? Is Jesus blessing us and stuff, man? Right? It's just, I just imagine that that probably happened for sure because human beings are sometimes unable to be satisfied. And then look at Peter's response. Here it is, epiphany, aha, revelation. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And then, and then we see Jesus' response if you drop down to verse 10. Don't be afraid. What? what? What's happening here, okay? Jesus does something that's miraculous. And then Simon Peter's initial reaction is he, he, he Simon Peter inter, interjects sin. I'm sinful. Get away from me. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. You know what I think happened? I think it's here in the text. Simon had, had the moment that this man... This Jesus is not like me. There is something different here. We haven't seen this before. And his initial reaction was to be afraid. Why? Because I believe, just a suggestion to you, that one of our greatest fears is that if we are fully known, we will not be fully loved. Because if that man knows me, get away from me. Because that power, that is different. And you don't know who I am. But we actually know that Jesus is initiating this. Do you see this good news and this grace lavished all over this? And then Jesus' response, right, is stop being, that's literally what it means in the original, stop being afraid. You see, I would argue that long, you know, when it comes to fears, I'm not talking about phobias, right? Like when you walk through a spider web and then burn all the clothes that you're wearing, right? Because that's a proper response to walking into a spider web, okay? I'm talking about, think, listen to me, look up here. I'm talking about things that control your every thought of every day. Of why you manipulate relationships and why you have to be in positions of authority and why you run and why you push people away. Because I believe the Bible speaks to the common core of every human being. A desire to be fully known just as we are and a desire to be fully loved and accepted just that way. It's what makes marriage so difficult. Because you're like, you're fully known, okay, right? Then it's the tension, and then it's the rub. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Fear's been something that I've been very much so interested in. Um, I read a book by an early church father, a desert father, by the name of John Climactus, and, and, and he wrote a book called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. The desert fathers were really cool. They're, they're an early stage of Christian history. They moved out into the wilderness and the desert as sort of a symbolism to not live under the empire, and they lived this aesthetic life, and and, and he wrote the letter, uh, the ladder of divine ascent as sort of like a step-by-step -step of, of what it is to become a disciple in holiness. One of the chapters revolves around fear. And when I read his definition of fear, it just struck me. This is his definition. Fear is the loss of assurance. That's what fear is. Fear is the loss of assurance. That if somebody knows me, I'm now afraid because now they probably will not love me. 
That's why the fear of rejection and all of those things come in, is that I don't know who I am now. I don't know what this relationship is. Is it based upon what I can offer? Because if it is, depart from me because I am a sinful man. But then this was his advice. Do not hesitate to go late at night into the depths of those places where you are usually afraid. Because if you do this, and if you yield only a little bit step by step to this weakness, then this childish and ridiculous infirmity will grow old with you. What? What? You're telling me to go headstrong into something that terrifies me? Like risking myself in relationships or things like that? We see that that's what Jesus asked Peter to do. And then it dawned on me, if fear is the loss of assurance, and Peter's response to his revelation of Jesus is, get away from me, I'm sinful, which, by the way, is the proper response to Christ. That is the proper response, okay? It's not the culture, Jesus is my homeboy, lost member of the beat. Like, that stuff wearies me to my core, man. He says, depart from me for I'm sinful. You're not like me, so I'm afraid. And Jesus draws him closer. And I was reminded of 1 John. Listen to this good news. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. That if you knew me, you would punish that. You would change that. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So listen, here's what's happening relationally. Peter, revelation, that's Jesus. Get away from me. Pushes him away. Jesus draws him closer and says, stop being afraid. Because if fear is the loss of assurance, then love is the assurance of the relationship. So Jesus wants to go there in your life. Jesus wants to take you there. And listen, I'm going to tell you, if you don't allow Jesus to do this, it will be exhausting for you to follow Christ. Exhausting. And there's that one area. It's almost like when we go to the doctor or go to the dentist like to get our teeth checked. And sometimes, maybe I'm just the only one that does this, but like getting your teeth checked, you're like, hey, doc, don't look around in there. Because <laughs> like, seriously, don't look around in there because I don't know what else I got going on, okay? And sometimes we're like, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but don't look around in there. That's the very thing. That's the very area. Because listen, when you face that fear and when Jesus takes you to that very place and it's exposed, what else is left? There's no other power there anymore. That's where Jesus wants to take us. And he draws us closer by the last thing, by inviting us in onto the mission. So it's not just like, hey, Peter, this is it. Don't be afraid. But it says this, and from now on, you will be catching men. Like, I love it. It meant so much to me this week when I studied this, that Jesus, right? This is the mission theologians call the missio dei, the mission of God. It's the Latin phrase, and it's this big concept, and I have like 100 books about it, and it's all woo-hoo-hoo, all this stuff. And what Jesus does is Jesus speaks this blue-collar guy's language. Hey, uh, you're a fisherman. You know what that's like? Cool, because that's like God's mission. You're now going to be fishing for people. And it actually means that you're going to be catching people alive. You're going to be catching people alive. And listen, all through the pages of Scripture, that is what our God is. Listen, the response of Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden, what did God do? Did God shame, 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 wrong, 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 sin, 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 bad, 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 you, 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 shame, shame, shame? No. Where are you? 
pursuing. Our God is a loving father pursuing lost children. That's the mission. It will always be the mission of the church to invade darkness and to snatch people alive who are pampering and playing around with death. That is God's very mission. And, and actually what's happening here in this passage is the DNA for us here at Westside. So I've got, this is going to be a little bit intense. It's a pretty advanced drawing. I drew something. It's really theologically heavy, but I don't know if you can handle it. But this is what it looks like, okay? Um, it's real deep stuff here, all right? So um, our core values here at Westside are engage people with the gospel, encourage one another in community, and to equip disciples for mission. That all starts with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are loved and accepted in the person of Jesus. What that good news does is it makes people. That's what Jesus is doing. There's now followers. There's now a new community. Go, therefore, make disciples. It's a new community of people. And these people are learning what it is to love one another and to forgive one another and to serve one another and let that selfish flesh just constantly get beat down in our lives. And we're serving, but not for the sake of ourselves. You see, it's gospel community, but then there's a mission. Well, what's the mission? The mission is the gospel so that more people can know about the love of Jesus experienced in community and then going out from there. But I know what you're saying, mission, mission, which, by the way, I think mission is probably our least embodied DNA here as a church. Um, I think it's something that was internal in the beginning for us as a church, and now God's placing some things in front of us that that mission can go out and become external now. But what does it look like? If, If I were to tell you, hey, man, you're supposed to follow Jesus and be on mission, you'd be like, what? Mission? Is that the Tom Cruise thing, the movie thing? Toast, toast, right? I don't know. What does that mean, okay? Here's a few things that I think living on mission looks like, and they come right from Jesus here, okay? The first one is this, is being intentional. Just intentional. Jesus knows where he's at. He knows who he's talking to, fishermen. He uses the fishing analogy to get the point across to Jesus. It's just being intentional in the ordinary day-to-day. Do you know what it is to see someone who lives with intention or someone who's intentional? Watch a bride planning her wedding, right? Because even the font on the invitations came from that thing on Pinterest that I love, and it has to look this way, right? Everything means something, right? Hey, listen, newsflash. Everything in your life means something. Nothing's wasted. So do you have a normal routine before you go to work? You stop by that same gas station, get that same you know, drink, that same snack. Do you, do, you get your hair cut at the same place for the guy who never cuts it right for 47 years of your life or like all of this stuff? Listen, Popper Bluff is a place where people who are in routine constantly and none of them are intentional with their time. Like this afternoon, if you go out to eat, your waiter or waitress has a name and they have a story and they're created in the image and likeness of God. And it's not like it's just being intentional with where I'm at and seeing where people are on this mission because God initiates relationships. But it's not just being intentional. It's being personal. Look at what Jesus says. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. In verse 11, and when they had dropped their boats to the land, they left everything and followed a set of ideas. And they followed an institution. And they followed a political party. They follow the person, that person being Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, just follow me. It's going to be kind of crazy at times. We're not going to know where we're going to stay. It's going to be nuts. The Apostle Paul says later on about discipleship, "Um, follow my example as I'm following Christ. You know that's what discipleship is, right? It's not this big, complicated thing. So 
practically, let's work it out. If you're a married couple in here and, and you're a bit older and you've been married for a long period of time, um, for you to be intentional and personal is to just invite a younger married couple out to dinner. What? What? Well, do we have to have an agenda? Lord, no. Okay? That's awkward, all right? People are not projects. People are people, and they just need to be loved. Or if you're an older man or if you're an older woman, what is it to just have coffee with someone and just say, hey, here's my life, and here's the reason why we don't do that? It goes back to the great fear that if they knew my life, that if they knew my life, they wouldn't want to follow me. Well, listen, just newsflash, okay? Um, they're two steps away from stupid just like you are, all right? And everybody in this room needs Jesus. And what we need is a few people who are brave enough to be transparent with the brokenness in their life. And just go, this is what it is for us. You can follow along. That's what it is to be personal and to be intentional. But the last thing is this. It's to be sacrificial. What did they leave? They left everything and followed him. Now, think about it. They had just caught probably the greatest amount of fish that they had ever caught in their life. I think it's pretty safe to say it was sinking the boats, all right? And they look at that on the shore. That's what they left. See, we think, oh, they left their jobs and their occupations and all that. No, no, no. They left up to that point the greatest blessing that God had ever given them in their life. And it's almost like they're looking at all of that pile of money and fish and what all of that represents. And then they're looking at Jesus and it's like, okay, Okay, is it my dreams and is it my dream house and my plans and my job and my all of this? Or is it just trusting this Christ? Is it just trusting this Jesus? See, I think a lot of times we say that we're down to follow Jesus because we hope that our family will be safe while we do it. And I hope that's a prayer for you, and I hope that God does that in your life. But listen, I say this all the time. The goal of following Jesus is Jesus. It's just Jesus. That's the greatest gift that we've ever gotten. And that's going to be a sacrifice in your life. Because listen to me, Jesus demands from us the very thing that he gives to us, which is everything. I mean, look at the rhythm in the passage. Simon before Jesus, empty nets, failure. Simon after Jesus, full boat and a new purpose in life. But do you know what I think this looks like for us? Um, I read this article this week, and I'll close with this. It was KFES 12 posted this article, and I just clicked on it and read it. It was amazing. This is what it says. Nearly 5,000 pieces of mail were found at the storage unit. This dude who works for the Postal Service in Virginia, a mail carrier, was too stressed to finish the job each day to deliver the mail. So what he did is he bought a, a, a local storage unit for $49 a month. And when the day was just too tough and he couldn't finish his route, he just tossed the mail in the storage unit, shut the door, and called it a day. That's like a fed... I learned in junior high that when you mess with mailboxes, it's a federal offense. <laughs> this is like a big deal, okay? It's a big deal. So I had to open up this investigation, do all this stuff. There were like IRS letters and all... I mean, like, the IRS didn't believe anybody, by the way, when they were like, I didn't get the letter. And they're like, nobody cared, right? Listen to me. I think that's, that's a great illustration of a lot of Christians. If you come in here today and this sermon and this message stops with you, then you're the storage unit. God saves you to send you because it ain't about you, bro. It's just not. 
And when we can start to live our life with that type of intentionality, that's what will change. Like we say, God is pursuing people. Ooh, that's a good idea. But hey, let's get it on your level. God is using people to pursue people. That's not an ethereal concept that God is pursuing people. God uses you. And some of you are praying for your family, praying for your mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, brothers and sisters that God would save them. Are you intentional with your time with them? God has placed you in in the world that you live in there. God saves you to send you to be intentional in that world. So as we close, I just have a few questions for application. The first one is this. What current circumstance in your life could God possibly be drawing you or asking you out into the deep? It's scary there. And followed up by this question, what are you afraid of? That's probably your depths there. And Jesus, Jesus wants to go there with you, and here's why. Because he wants to expose the false darkness of that power. And he wants to show you that his love casts out fear. And then once that's been exposed, then it gives us more steps in the journey. But the last question is this, who are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? If it ends on you today, fail. We're all about encouragement and we want to lift each other up. But when we go out from this place, then we leave with a different perspective. So I said, why don't you stand to your feet as we get ready to come to the tables and partake in the elements of communion. What we see in communion are the elements that God initiated the relationship with us. The body is broken and the blood is shed. My prayer for you today is is that as you come to the table, that you would come with fears, that you would leave them there, that you would pick up the body and the blood, and you would feel the assurance of love. So Westside, let us lift up our voices and pray out loud how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so thankful that you initiate. God, there are people in this room that you are pursuing they are running and you are pursuing and they are running. And I just pray that grace just breaks them down. It's good news. Stop being afraid. Because perfect love casts out fear. God, I pray that as we leave this place today that we would leave with intentional eyes the world that's already around us. I pray for the boldness that we would have to initiate relationships in our life for their good and your glory. We pray this all in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ.